0: WDBM East Lansing
1: FM The Impact You're listening to Impact
0: Exposure.
2: Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University. This is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I am your host, Steven Rich, and tonight we have a bit of a potluck for you. We'll hear about the rare corpse plant here at MSU, a study conducted about internet habits in students, and much, much more. This is Exposure.
3: Highlights, clear view on the Vista. Star so close you can reach out and kiss one. Bright waves roll, easy and still. Sparkling and deep, throwing and sweet
2: again i am Stephen rich and this is impact 89 fm you are listening to exposure this past week there was a peculiar smell in the air on campus the smell of death the rare corpse plant in the Department of Plant Biology opened, bringing visitors from far and wide. Professor Frank Tuluski tells us about this event. Frank, the reason we brought you on today is there's been a very pungent odor coming from the, uh,
4: the Plant Biology Teaching Conservatory. What's, what's been that smell? <laughs> well, we have a very unusual flower, and it is the largest flower uh, in the world. And you consider the whole structure uh, that's in, blo- in bloom right now, mm-hmm. what we refer to botanically as an inflorescence. And what that flower is is the corpse flower or the uh, Morphophallus uh, titanum, which is the plant that is in bloom and is native to Indonesia, particularly the island of Sumatra. Mm-hmm. And where it lives on this island, uh, it has a very specific uh, set of pollinators. And the pollinators that it attracts, unlike uh, honeybees to, say, a cherry or an apple tree, uh attracted with a sweet smell of sugar. Uh, this particular plant produces a rather fetid smell. Uh, one of uh, we had a number of descriptions: one of rotting fish, one of rotting garbage, one of rotting meat. And uh, basically, what it does is it attracts its pollinators, which are uh, beetles and and a type of fly that feeds off of decaying material. Mm. And in, our, in a documentary a few years ago by David Attenborough, he also documented that there are some uh, sweat bees that are also attracted yeah. to this, this plant. So the insects that are attracted to, to pollinate this plant have an attraction to this rather uh, smell. And the smell is released when the plant and the female flowers are, are most receptive to receive pollen. And so on Monday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, the flower began to open. And by 8 o'clock in the evening, the flower was in full bloom. And over that period of time, and into the night, and into Tuesday morning, it had released the maximum amount of this this odor. Mm-hmm. And when I came in to give an interview for uh, the local radio, uh, TV station, um, I opened up the the greenhouse, and it was gag-worthy. Uh, <laughs> it was really bad. A lot of people come by, you know, you know a couple of days later. It's you know, like, well, gee, you know, uh, it doesn't smell all that bad. Well, take that. Times a thousand, you know, that's that's what the smell was. So it's it's pretty remarkable, and mm-hmm. it's a very attract. It's a very uh, unique thing. I think it brings a lot of people to interest. Yeah,
2: and that's yeah. One thing I noticed is it's brought tons of people. So what is what's so <clears> exciting <throat> about this bloom? Is it rare for this type of flower to bloom?
4: Well, there aren't too many of them around in cultivation. Uh, they are becoming more popular, more more available as um, as seed and corm becomes available within in the uh, the botanical gardens trade uh, profession. Uh, so I know there's uh, there's one in Columbus, Ohio. I think Ohio State has one. We have one here in the Midwest. I think there's one down in Illinois. Uh, there's one in Pittsburgh. Uh, there's one, of course, in the New York and in, in Brooklyn National Botanic Garden. There's several in Florida, the Selby Botanical Gardens, and the Fairchild Botanical Gardens, and so forth. So they are becoming less rare than they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the two things that I think are three things that really makes it worthwhile and exciting and why people come from great distances to see this particular plant when it is in bloom is because it is the largest inflorescence. Uh, they do bloom infrequently. It mm-hmm. takes a period of several years for the plant to store up enough carbon, enough sugar, and starch in its corm. Uh, and a corm is like a bulb. Uh, a bulb is modified leaves. Yeah. A corm is a modified stem. If you think of crocuses, almost everybody's planted crocuses, that little mm-hmm. thing you plant in the ground, that's a corm. Mm-hmm. Well, this particular plant has a giant corm. Ours is probably about 30 pounds. Uh, <sighs> they've, they've been much larger than that in, rec- you know, in records and under cultivation. And so it has to put all this energy back into the corm. Mm-hmm. And once it has stored enough energy then it can produce a flower. So when it produces a flower, it only produces a flower. It doesn't produce a leaf. In some rare instances, that may have happened. But in general, the flower is the event for the year. And then the next year, it goes back to vegetative. It goes back to producing a leaf. Mm. And these leaves are spectacular. The leaves can be 8 to to 9 feet tall, 8 to 9 feet across. I mean, it's like a huge patio umbrella.
2: Yeah. I mean, to me, it looked like something out of like a Dr. Seuss book. It's just this enormous flower. (laughs) And... um. In, you said that it's it's the largest known in, uh, inflorescence. Correct. That means flower. It's right. an
4: unbranched inflorescence. Yeah, unbranched inflorescence. In other words, um, if you think of something, oh gosh, it's not qu- quite as big, but. Uh, there's a plant here in Michigan that's that's uh, a little bit of an invasive called hogweed, giant hogweed. It mm-hmm. produces a, a a branched inflorescence, and it's it's in the same it's in the carrot family. Okay. And so when you look at that, if you look at Queen Anne's lace, and some people may be familiar with Queen Anne's lace, the wild carrot. Um, the hogweed is kind of like that on steroids. It's just oh. huge, <laughs> and it's actually very toxic. You don't want to come in contact with it because it can cause a lot of skin blistering. But the point is, is that the flower is large, but it's 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 branched. It's it's composed of many smaller inflorescences, and whereas this one is just one huge structure mm-hmm. without any branching at all. And if you look inside, if you look down inside, the, the plant is composed of two parts: that large yellow central spire or spike that you may recall mm-hmm. seeing. It's called the spathex. And at the bottom of the spathex, that's where you see the male and the female flowers. There's literally hundreds of male and female flowers. And then the the leafy part that kind of looked like maybe people think of as being a petal is really called the spathe. And for people here in Michigan who are particularly familiar with wildflowers in Michigan, they'll know two members of this family that grow here in Michigan. One is the -the jack-in-the-pulpit. And when you think of the pulpit, that's that little covering that covers over the the spathex. That's the that's the spath. And then that little jack, what they refer to jack, that's inside of the pulpit. That's the that's the spathex. And so when we see that large yellow structure, that's a big jack. Okay, in, in analogy. And and skunk cabbage. Skunk cabbage is also in the same family. The araceae oh, okay. is the, is that particular family.
2: Yeah, and I've read part of the the challenge of the corpse plant is that they're pretty easy to
4: kill. Was, it, was this a challenge for you guys? Was it a, a struggle to keep it alive? No. Jane Sirens uh, is our um, botanical garden uh, technician, our horticulturist, uh, who takes care of the uh, all of the plants in the in the teaching conservatory. And she's she's really very talented, a, a wizard at plant propagation and, and growing plants. And um, she's not killed it, obviously. We got this <laughs> plant originally in 1995 from Fairchild uh-huh. Botanical Garden, John Mugg, who some people may know, uh, who also teaches over in plant biology now. Uh, first acquired the plant from Fairchild, and it first bloomed in 2010. Jan took over uh, care and feeding of the plant in, uh, shortly after that mm-hmm. and turned it around pretty quickly to get it bloom in four years. Uh, I imagine like any plant, as any anybody who's ever tried to have a house plant uh, knows that you can either overwater or underwater the poor plant. And if you overwater it, underwater it, or don't give it enough sunlight, or it gets too cold on your windowsill, especially like this past winter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you will kill it. I, I killed a couple of my orchids that way, and I'm not. You no, know, I'm I'm pretty good with plants, so I mean, I just kind of should have realized that. I should have probably taken them away from the cold air of the window. So, um, every plant has its requirements, and it's best to know those requirements.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And as far as the name goes, the corpse plant, it could not be more accurate. I went pretty late, and still, when when you get your face right into it, oh my gosh, it is just rank.
4: And so, how does it produce such as just horrible odor? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, On the spathex, that large central structure, um, we call a lot of the tissue that you see, that yellowish tissue, as being sterile tissue. In other words, it's not involved directly in reproduction. It doesn't produce pollen. It doesn't have the embryo or the eggs or anything like that. And that particular structure is what produces the smell. So it's a biochemical process. And on Wikipedia, they actually list the various chemicals that are produced to produce that smell and what smells they smell like. And there's things like, you know, smells like dirty socks, smells like rotting fish. Uh, so uh, these uh, compounds are natural metabolites that the plant can can synthesize mm-hmm. and then release into the air.
2: Oh, okay, and like you said earlier, it's not for defense or anything. It's just to attract those those bugs to pollinate it. Correct. It's a, to attract the pollinators. Got it. And. So you've obviously had to be around this plant a lot this week. Have you had have you been able to grow
4: accustomed to this smell or is it every time you go in there it's just oh <laughs> um, well, uh, having been there Monday and Tuesday when it's at its peak, um, I, I think I'm not sure I've become accustomed to it, but it certainly doesn't smell as intense. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, Monday night when I went home, Monday evening, uh, I still had this, you know, I ever had that saying, that smell's still in your nose. And <laughs> yeah. I went to bed and I was like, you know, I can't get that smell out of my nose. It was it, it was very intense. Yeah,
2: and when we went there, you're sitting right inside and I was just like, I mean, walking in, even on Thursday when it's not in its full bloom, it still hits you. <laughs> so sitting in there,
4: I imagine it was a little bit rough. <laughs> yeah, well, the thing that to me is really fascinating is that, you know, if, if we had a, a, a professor or graduate students interested in, in – um, uh, neural biology and sense your know, sensory perception um, olfactory perception it'll be a real interesting study because you could see people walk up and it's like they'll walk in and like, oh, oh you know you see their face crinkle up you tell that they just smelled it and, you know other people kind of walk up stick their nose into it yeah, I don't, I don't smell anything. I mean, maybe, maybe they have allergies or head cold or something like that. Mm-hmm. or maybe they, You know, I think, you know again, like a lot of senses, maybe people have different sensitivities, olfactory sensitivities, certainly. Mm-hmm. And when we were waiting in, once we finally got in, we saw a couple people go up and
2: the exact same thing. A few people would just kind of smell and be like, oh, yeah, I guess it's bad. And then you get that one <laughs> or two people who looks like they've been punched. Punched, <laughs> yeah. And that
4: face just wrinkles up. It's like,
0: oh, God.
2: Did you have any, anyone have like a particularly interesting reaction to smelling the plant or say anything funny about it?
4: Not that, not that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it would have been interesting to have people come in at five thirty in the morning on Tuesday morning because <laughs> I know I was gagging. I mean, it, it, the smell was so intense that uh, when I gave the interview for the, the television station, I had to take very short breaths. And it was funny because my wife watched the uh, the tape of that or the, the the DVR of that, and she said, "Yeah, yeah, I can, you know, she knows me. She said, yeah, you're just taking very short breaths to talk." <laughs> And, uh, you know,
2: like I said earlier, we had uh, just a ton of people come. Lines were over two hours of waiting for three hours, three hours of waiting to see the plant just to get a glimpse. So do, do you guys have a count of how many
4: visitors you had total? You know, I'm going to put together a, a, a post-event analysis to try to sit there and figure out what we did right and what we didn't do right. Mm-hmm. One of the things we didn't do right is we didn't have a clicker or any way of tracking oh. that. Um, um, I would guesstimate that we had anywhere between four and 6,000 people coming through. And I know that's wow. a lot of variability. That's a 33% you know variance <laughs> or a 50% variance, depending on how you look at that. Um, it's uh, The response was remarkable um we were anticipating a few hundred maybe a thousand people coming through over a period of days uh, when we opened up for pretty much most of the day on tuesday the day that was you know the morning when it was in full bloom uh, we closed down at eight o'clock at night, and there was a three hour wait. Wow. At eight o'clock at night. And we kept the doors open, and the last person went through at 11 o'clock at oh night. Oh, my And gosh. they were grateful, and I was grateful. And like, I walked down the line, and I addressed everybody in the line and said, You know, you've come here, you've waited this long, you're passionate about plants, we're passionate about plants you're going to see this plant. Mm-hmm. You're not going to go home tonight without seeing this plant. That's great. I'm really glad that you
2: guys did that. I mean, and to me, have you ever seen the movie Anchorman by chance?
4: Uh, no, I have. Oh. I definitely want to.
2: Well, there's this scene in it the kind of like the overarching end of the story that it, at all the news stations are reporting on this panda being birthed. And I kind of saw this like that, like it was this local story <laughs> and everyone was covering it. Everyone was so excited about it because it was just a day and a half of like, you got to get there right now. And so right. it's just campus w- exploded. I mean, people Came from? Do you know how? Did you get anyone coming from far away to come see the well, plant? Well,
4: I, I know I had two uh, two families coming from Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, and I spoke with them. Actually, one lady has been trying to see this plant for over ten years. Wow! In flower, <laughs> and she missed it in Columbus. She missed it in Los Angeles, and she heard we had ours blooming. She said, I have to see it, and so I was actually you know in touch with her and said, "You've got to come up today. It's going to bloom tomorrow." And so she came up. There was another. It's a great little story. But uh, there was a family from Chicago on Sunday that came up, mm-hmm. and they lived. They, they were born and raised in Indonesia, right next to the botanical gardens. Oh. You know, near in Sumatra, and so the mother and the father and the grandmother were were with them and the little children. And so they came all the way from Chicago so that they could see this flower from from home mm-hmm. and show their children a flower from home because mm-hmm. this is such a spectacular plant. And the the wife was really kind of funny. She was like, you know. We lived right next to the botanical garden all those years, and my husband never showed any interest in plants. And so now he drives, <laughs> travels—you know—five hours, four hours from Chicago to see this flower. But it was—it was wonderful. We had one person say they drove eleven hours. Oh my gosh! We happened to have a tour bus visiting the Beale Botanical Garden, which I'm also the uh-huh. curator of, uh, up on North Campus from Montreal. Oh. And, and so they had the opportunity to go down and see the corpse flower. So they didn't come from Montreal to see the corpse flower. They just had flower. really good time to be here. But boy, <laughs> you talk about perfect timing, uh, with uh, grandparents' weekend, you know, grandparents' mm-hmm. university. I mean, uh, at the same time, all of the grandparents, all of their children. This is wonderful. Who knows who the next botanist or horticulturist or agriculturist? You know, we help to, you know, to forge mm-hmm. over this period of time as those kids go in there, their imagination goes wild, and 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 one of them has to hopefully be inspired about plants and think plants are exciting to study. Mm-hmm. And that's our outreach mission here, I think, at, at Michigan State. we Teaching, research, and outreach. Mm-hmm. And and that's the three pillars we stand on here, and, and, uh, what our, our mission is. Awesome.
2: Yeah, and it definitely did raise a ton of awareness for the, the plant bio department, which is great. So do you guys have anything else that you're going to be working on this summer that people should be getting <laughs> getting excited about? Obviously, it's hard to top the Corpse plant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's
4: just like, you know, you produce a, a, an incredible movie, and what do you do next? Or a great record album, and what do you do next? It's like, I, I really don't know. I mean, um, we'll keep the Botanical Garden, Beale Garden going. We'll keep this this facility. This facility, unfortunately, is primarily for uh, students. Uh, it's not open to the public. We opened it up to the public for this week, for mm-hmm. this event. Uh, there's been a lot of positive feedback. Um, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll you know, you know change the way we do things. Uh, that depends on, on staffing. By the way, a real real shout out to the staff of the uh, the uh, conservat- of the of the greenhouse facilities Dave Freeville and his staff uh, really really helped with crowd control mm-hmm. said we weren't anticipating anything like this yeah. at all and you know I couldn't have done it without all the fantastic help I've had from everybody all the various offices my office uh, up in Olds Hall, mm-hmm. uh, Beale Botanical Garden, uh, the folks in plant biology handling phone calls from people. Where is this thing growing? Where do I go? How do I see it? Are you open? So it's, it's been great.
2: That's Yeah, it's really cool. And so how did MSU obtain the plant? You, you mentioned back, we got it in 1994, did you 1995.
4: Say? Uh, okay. John Mugg received it as a very small quorum. As, uh, like like most things that with below ground reproductive structures, they'll produce buds and they'll mm-hmm. produce small reproductive structures off to the side. Asexually, So it's a clone of the parent plant at Fairchild Botanical Garden down in, um, in the Miami area. Quick interesting story about Fairchild. Fairchild Theater here mm-hmm. at Michigan State University was named for a professor by the last name of Fairchild. He had a son. The son grew up here on the campus of Michigan Agricultural College and followed Professor Beale and Liberty Hyde Bailey around on campus. Oh, very good. And he became very fascinated with plants. And so when he moved to Florida, he started his own botanical garden, the Fairchild Botanical Garden. So there's actually a direct lineage link between Fairchild and – you know, Beal Botanical Garden, Michigan State University. Um
2: so is this is this a rare plant in, in Sumatra? Is this are they do they grow everywhere? I mean That's
4: that's a really good question. And I, I to be honest, I really didn't know the answer. I had another woman who's uh, living here in Lansing, works at Michigan State now, who grew up and is is a native Indonesian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, lived on the island of Sumatra, and she said the only place that she ever saw it was in the botanical gardens. And that you know, her mm. her wanderings of the island, uh, she never saw one in the wild. <laughs> so she said that you know they're not that common in the wild. Hmm. Is there anything else
2: that you want to add that uh, I missed, or anything any interesting stories that happened surrounding the plant?
4: I think I shared most of the interesting stories. I think one thing, uh, if anybody has an interest in this story and wants to see more. Uh, to check out our Facebook page, mm-hmm. and uh, that's uh, you can just uh, look up the Beale Botanical Garden Facebook page. Okay. There's two Facebook pages with Beale Botanical Garden, and and we're the more act we're, we're the officially active okay. one. It'll be obvious when you see the page. Mm-hmm. But what's really exciting is that uh, again, like I said, there's so many people involved in this, and another group of people was our University Relations uh, um, Communications Branding Cabs is their their new uh, acronym. Um, but working with them to get the word out about this plant really helped bring the crowds in and get the public mm-hmm. in And they did a great job. I mean, you guys were everywhere. <laughs> yes, they sure did. I mean, this thing took off like wildfire. But the other thing that they did is they set up a time-lapse camera and did time-lapse photography of the flower when it bloomed. And they just yesterday um, – you're going to be putting this out a little bit later. So on on Tuesday afternoon, they posted – I mean, Thursday afternoon, uh, they posted a – YouTube clip mm-hmm. of that time-lapse video. Yep. I and, saw,
2: I think I saw that last right. night. And where, where where can they find that? Is that on your Facebook? Or is oh, it...
4: There's a link on our Facebook page, mm-hmm. uh, on the Beale Botanical Garden Facebook page. And I think also if you go to YouTube, uh, it's on the MSU, Michigan State University channel. Okay. So YouTube channel. And I think that if you typed in MSU and corpse flower, uh, you, it should pop up one of the top uh, top ones. There's a couple other ones that'll pop up as well uh, from some of the television stations. And mm-hmm. some of those interviews are who too. So if wants to get a good laugh of uh, a reporter interviewing myself or you know some of the views of the flower, uh, they're a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And I, I
2: saw the video, and one of the cool things about the time lapse videos, you really see how alive the plant is. Because not only is it opening the whole time, but it's adjusting and moving and shaking. So it's really interesting to see just how alive it is. I mean, even because was the time lapse like a day and a half? Or?
4: Yeah, it was. It the time lapse is probably just a little bit over forty eight hours. I mean, mm-hmm. twenty four hours. So uh, it it when it bloomed, it does it very fast. And the, and the reason for that again is the biology. The um, the female flowers are receptive the first night when the big stink is released and attracts the pollinators to bring the pollen to the, to pollinate the females. And then the second night, the male flowers release their pollen and the female flowers are no longer receptive. Mm. And the reason for that is, is that the, um, the plant does not want to self itself. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't want to pollinate itself. It wants to outcross. And that would, that that ensures genetic diversity you you don't marry your sister (laughs) sort of thing. Um, and so really it makes for a stronger, uh, plant Mm -hmm. and a stronger plant population. Um, we were hoping to fertilize our flower, and there, there's a flower in Costa Mesa at the Orange Coastal uh, College in California and also Selby Botanical Garden in Florida have flowers that were in bloom about the same time as ours was, and we were trying to arrange to get pollen to uh-huh. cross-pollinate. Unfortunately, Costa Mesa's bloomed the same day ours bloomed. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, by the time I was able to reach the scientists, my colleagues at, at Selby, um, we were 24 hours too late to get uh-huh. the the pollen shipped up here. But I was able to to go into the flower and self pollinate it, and so hopefully we will get some seeds uh, from you know from this particular bloom cycle. Mm-hmm. And with a plant that's so
2: rare and exotic, do you guys work a lot with other other gardens and other um,
4: schools or universities to help do this kind of like outreach and? In- we have we have a network of botanical gardens around the world, and we participate in network, and it's, it's maybe a little bit more of a loose affiliation. There's two major organizations, Botanic Gardens Conservation International out of Kew Gardens in, in England, mm-hmm. and um, the APGA, American Public Gardens Association. And affiliated with the APGA, I have a, web, uh, a, a, a listserv where we link hundreds of botanic gardens around the world to share information. You could post up, you know, I need pollen for this particular plant? Or do you know where I can find a plant of that? Mm -hmm. We also participate in what's called the International Seed Exchange Program. So we produce a seed catalog every year and we share that with other botanic institutions and they share their catalogs with us. And so Mm -hmm. therefore we are able to then increase the biodiversity of our holdings, our collections, and share material around the world. Uh, We try to take a great deal of precaution with spreading diseases or spreading Mm -hmm. invasive species. There's been a lot more awareness of that and a lot more government restrictions on import and export as well. So we have to we had to participate when we get outside of the United States with all of the various regulations involved and conservation issues as well. well. Got it. Well, again, I just want to thank you so much for being
2: with us and uh, just having the corpse plant for everyone to see. It was very exciting, you know, going there and just being hit by a wall of <laughs> funk. So, uh, again, thank you so much for just working really hard to make sure that the community got to enjoy that. And thank you for being on the show as well. So, well- You've been listening to Exposure. We've been talking with Dr. Frank Taluski, who's a professor in the plant biology department. Thank you for having me on. Frank and I talked a little bit after the interview, and he told me how rare it was to see a plant like this bloom, much like a master painter hard at work or watching a composer conduct his own symphony. So I just wanted to thank Frank and his department again for all the hard work that they put in to allow the community to experience this event. You're listening to WDBM, Impact 89FM, and this is Exposure. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. In 15 minutes, we'll hear about a study regarding in-class internet use. But first, Kenan Wetzel is an athlete on the MSU basketball team and now an aspiring filmmaker. He joined us to talk about his film project. The movie's about a, a former college basketball player who
5: um, who gets hurt in his last college game, and he has to kind of adjust to life without basketball. So we pick up the character Wesley Ray... Uh, 5 years older and uh he's sitting on a park bench looking for work. Mm. Uh he has a family. He's uh he's got a uh daughter and then he's uh, got a girlfriend who's the mother of that daughter and uh basically it's his struggle of de- deciding what he wants to do next in life and uh you know he has a he's met by a stranger one day and uh the stranger kind of gives him new perspective on life mm. and kind of changes his uh
2: his path I I would say. And um just to kind of kick things off too, what does the name the cager come from? I understand it's a basketball from the history of basketball, right?
5: Yeah, it, it comes from the history of basketball, but also it's connected to so uh, it's connected to where he kind of starts his day. So back in the you know, twenties and thirties they played uh basketball inside of a net, so they'd call basketball players cagers. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and in this case he starts every day uh looking for work in a zoo, and so he's sitting there on the park bench at a zoo and he feels a real connection with the animals that are behind him in cage because they're these glorious animals. And he f- feels like, you know, he's like that, you know, meant for so much more than what his actual situation is. So um, there's kind of a – it's a double-edged sword kind of meaning there. And, uh, you know, like I
2: said, it's he, – he feels kind of en- entrapped in his family uh, situation. Mm-hmm. And you've uh, obviously been a basketball player for many years, played here at MSU for the past three years, and is playing are playing again um, next year. So did you draw a lot on your own experience or people you saw around you to make this? Uh, a bit of both. I'd say mostly off of kind of like visually just watching others.
5: Um, you know, since I was a little kid, I always watched people. I was just a people watcher. I, you know, uh, my mom always says that. So, um, But also just experiences I've had. I mean, this is a basketball film, but it also deals with uh, you know, anyone at a crossroads their lives, you know, deciding what gives them meaning. And and basically it speaks to not fame and fortune as meaning, but more so, you know, uh, your family and love mm-hmm. and uh, the, the true meaning of happiness. Those those type of things uh, are relevant to anyone. So, yeah, there's a basketball undertone to the film, uh, but it's not a basketball film. And there's actually no scenes of actual
2: basketball in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you can hear it. Uh, you can hear flashbacks, but you never see any. Got it. So yeah, definitely a wide range for an audience. And do you remember when you first came up with the idea for the film? Yeah. Tell um, a bit about that. I mean the
5: absolute origin of the film, I don't remember exactly, but I know that I was, I, uh, have always wanted to do a short film obviously before I do a feature like film. And, um, I wanted to work with Delvon Rowe, who's a former basketball player here, um, who's going to star in the film and, uh, you know, I, I'm always been enamored by like the the next step in life, kind of crossroads at your life, because it's such a a pivotal moment. And even if that's just one day in your life, those those moments that can change your life. So I wanted to write a story that had a little bit of basketball in it, but also had a, a much deeper meaning to it. Uh, so then I sat in the back of uh, buses and plane rides to uh, games this year, and I just I wrote the film and uh, you know rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and uh, and then this summer we've really attacked it.
2: Mm-hmm. And I mean, for a junior in college, it's a very ambitious project. It definitely, you guys are definitely trying to make it the best possible piece you can. So, why did you decide to pursue it to this high level?
5: Well, you know, we want to make a film that when uh, the viewer watches it, it's it feels like it's a film that you would see in a movie theater. Only it's 25 minutes long. You know, mm-hmm. we have every intention of sending it to uh, the big film festivals and trying to get into those. And really starting to uh, as a showcase piece to possibly a feature length film in, in the future, um, with these same kind of cr- core group of guys. Um, I, I enlisted the help of Eightfold Marketing uh, there in Lansing. My friend Nick Stahursky, he uh, owns the com- owns the company. as a producer on the film, and then Rumor Production uh, in Auburn Hills. And they uh, made a short film or a feature length film, Summer Born, last summer. Mm-hmm. So they these guys have done this all before. So me as a red director, I kind of enlisted these guys' help and. Um, with the quality of talent we have, that's why we're able to have such an ambitious goal.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, looking at your guys' Kickstarter, you're you're very prepared throughout it. You have everything from every single step of the day, you know, every every process to you know even the challenges and stuff you're you're facing. So you're in pre-production and you're looking for support. Um, Where can someone uh, look to help you fund this project?
5: Yeah, well, you can check out the Kickstarter page. Um, You go to kickstarter.com, and you type in the cager in the top bar. Or if your location's set to East Lansing, it'll come up also. Uh, So, yeah, we're in the funding process. And, uh, you know, basically all of our pre-production is done. The only thing we haven't done is is finalize our cast. Um, or uh, decide our exact locations but we have storyboards done we have our shot sheet done. we have a lot of the other pre-production uh, processes done that go into the film. So we're basically ready to rock and roll once we get um, our funding and uh, you know we're just we're really excited to get the project started.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, it definitely sounds like it And being an athlete here have you run into any problems with the NCAA regarding the funding of the film or have they kind of kept their hands off?
5: No uh, currently um, I'm in the process of uh, getting that all um, set. Um, you ever, it's funny cause 20 years ago, nobody knew what NCA compliance was. And now I try to, you know, you try to buy a hot dog at a hot dog stand and the hot dog <laughs> guy says, "Am yes, I'm allowed to sell you a hot dog. So it's kind of funny. Um, you know, everybody's aware of the rules. Um, but no, I've been in the process with, uh, compliance in the NCA and, uh, you know, they've told me everything I'm doing so far is good. Um, there's another waiver that we're waiting for. Um, but you know, yeah that was definitely I wasn't gonna sacrifice my eligibility to make a film mm-hmm. um, but there shouldn't be a problem I'm not taking any salary from the film mm-hmm. um, the it's basically my student thesis um, and I haven't been able to do as much because of basketball so this is kind of my opportunity to make a a, a big splash and it's nothing that no other that any other student couldn't do
2: so um, they're, they're really we don't foresee any problems yeah and um, like we said you've had a big history with basketball but well, we don't really know your history as a film as a film producer as a film fan so has this been a passion of yours your whole life
5: yeah i'd say the passion for just straight video making has started probably uh fourth third or fourth grade fifth grade maybe Um, my parents bought me a camera but just making little silly videos for class i realized i was kind of good at and i enjoyed it Mm -hmm. um so i'd make music videos i made my little brother be in my music videos that i'd make and uh you know i just that was always funny and uh and then the passion for film grew when I started to realize, like, I'd watch a film and I'd say, that's that's amazing. You know, it brought me into this world. And then I realized one day, actually, it was when I was watching Harry Potter, uh, the first <laughs> one, because I had read the book and I saw the movie. And I said, how are they going to make this a movie? And they made it. And it was just so unbelievable that they brought you into this world. And I said, wow, that's unreal. <laughs> and then I just had this moment. I'll never forget that. I was like, people get to do this for a living. People mm-hmm. get to be behind this and do this. So. From that moment on, I'd say since sixth grade, I knew I wanted to do this, and uh, I knew I was going to go to college for this, and um, I was fortunate enough to to be able
2: to do it now. Mm-hmm. And um, you, like you said too, you've, you're going to be working with Delvon Rowe, who's starring in your movie. What, how, how has it been working with him off the court, working with him as an actor rather than a, a fellow player? Sure. When when I got here, my first year, Delvon um, was still on the team,
5: but he then decided, like a couple months later, that he he was going to retire that mm-hmm. year. Uh, so we never really played on the court uh together but we had a relationship off the court mainly because you know he was a foreign player and he's still around um and I knew he was interested in acting and, and uh you know he'd already been in some things and uh we talked then and uh, vaguely you know you kid with somebody oh we'll work together someday well I'm the type of person that just brings it back up and says let's let's actually do it <laughs> yeah. you know the same with the film like let's actually make the film so uh he was he was really excited about it and uh um you know we actually talked yesterday we talked you know, a couple times a week, and we talked. He's breaking down the script right now, and uh, he's going to have suggestions, and we're going to do uh, calls, uh, you know, reads through, like, Skype because it'll be hard to get him out here. We're going to get him out of here a couple days early, but he's in Los Angeles, so we'll have reads with our other actors. So we're we're really excited about it, and we're excited to have such a, a prominent actor to be involved in the project.
2: Mm-hmm. And you said you, you don't have all your other actors set. You're still working on that?
5: No, we're still working on casting. Actually, there's funny um, rewards that you can – That with Kickstarter that you can uh, you can actually be an extra in the film, (laughs) Um, but also uh, no we haven't cast our film we haven't decided location also because if there's someone who who would like to be involved in the project says well we'll help you out but we'd like you to shoot it in Detroit or Lansing Mm -hmm. Um, but it'll probably most likely be a culmination of both and then from there um, you know casting we'll have an open casting call and uh, we'll also look for other SAG certified actors and we'll seek people out but uh, no we haven't casted we have one other role casted it's a voiceover um it's, there's an announcer in the film and that'll be uh voiced by will teaman who's the oh. voice of you know spartan radio for many years That's so great. <laughs> yeah it's really great um you know i actually i actually brought, talked to him about the project back in the back in the uh basketball season and he was like oh yeah it'd be really cool and i followed up with him he's like yeah i definitely
2: want to do it so we're really excited to have him involved Yeah. I mean, well, I think one of the coolest parts about the the film that you guys are trying to do is you've had a really kind of an insider's perspective of being a college athlete. And in recent years, there's been some problems with, um, you know, preparing students for after graduation um, at major other universities. Um, Do you think that these colleges or do you think universities in general are preparing preparing student athletes for after college uh, successfully?
5: Well, I certainly think you make the argument that, you know, just kids in general struggle after college. You know, so it's, it's a tough scenario. It's a tough situation. Um, you know, it's not, it's not so much the sp- film doesn't speak so much against anyone. Like, it's, it's, it's anyone's fault that the person's not prepared. I mean, it does come down to the individual at the end of the day mm-hmm. um, to make the right decisions and to understand the importance of college. Uh, most of us are getting school paid for. Um, and, and there's a lot of benefits and there's a lot of resources. I know personally I've taken advantage of a lot of the tutoring resources um, at, at Michigan state. So I can't speak for other schools, but, uh, you know, I think every college student that graduates, you know, struggles with what they're going to do next in life. So he's just another, he's another version that's just, it's a little bit amplified because he's almost been to the top of the mountain and then he's at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. So that's a little different than most college students who are kind of just building, building up, you know, he's been to the top or he, he imagined to make millions of
2: dollars. Mm-hmm. And so what do you see as the ultimate goal for the film? Is it strictly for entertainment or are you guys trying to raise awareness for uh you know getting students ready for after graduation or just the problems that people face in general when they're you know entering life after after college? Well, well certainly I
5: would be lying if I didn't say this wasn't going to be an artistic and entertaining piece. Mm-hmm. You know, we um we're going to shoot it um very cinematically, but there is there is a much uh, bigger meaning. There's two main themes to the film and that's it's parenthood because he's a father. And he struggles with his identity as a father because he never had a father, so that's a big theme in the film. Um, and we're actually in in contact with some nonprofits, such as uh, Parents Without Partners, um, to give them the film um, to show when uh, when it's done. Uh, we 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 are it's a nonprofit film. We're not going to sell the rights to anyone, mm-hmm. and so we do have this this vision to. Uh, it's a big message, and we want to get it out there. That
2: that is the main focus. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So it sounds like it's it's going to be entertaining, but it's got a, a good message to get out to people as well. Yep, that's the idea. Yep. Awesome. And then before we go, can you just remind us one more time how we can find you guys on Kickstarter?
5: Yeah, you can check out us. We have a video on Kickstarter. Also, it's um, it's uh, go to the Kickstarter com and search in the search tab the Cager, or you can follow us on Twitter at the Cager Film, or on Facebook the Cager. So we have updates. We've had about six updates. We're in, uh, the halfway point is actually yesterday. Um. Mm-hmm. So we have about 15 days left, and uh, we have videos up almost uh, every couple days about how the progress is going and um, what
2: you can do to help. Awesome. So we'll definitely keep you guys updated on that. And we've been talking with Kenan Wetzel, who's the writer and director of an upcoming movie called The Cager and an MSU basketball player. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. This is Stephen Rich, and you're listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. The Department of Psychology recently published a study on in-class Internet use. And although you may assume that these distractions can affect grades, Professor Susan Revisa tells us that the problem could be worse than expected.
0: Um, so what we did is uh, we asked students in a large introductory psychology class to um, self-report their use of smartphones and their laptops over the semester. hmm Um, And then what we did was we looked at the relationship between how much people used their laptops and cell phones in class um, to their test scores um, throughout the semester.
2: Mm -hmm. Very cool. So what kind of conclusions did you guys make as a result of the study?
0: Yeah. So um, we found that the more students used their cell phones um, and laptops, the lower their test scores. Mm -hmm. Um, We also looked at whether... Uh, intellectual ability uh, measured by ACT scores would moderate that relationship. So it it might be that people who scored high on the ACT would be very good at multitasking, and maybe it wouldn't affect their classroom learning. Mm -hmm. But what we actually found was that regardless of intellectual ability, um, all students showed this relationship between internet use and test scores. Mm-hmm.
2: And then I noticed you said that you had students self-report. So do you think the problem could even be even worse? Because I know when I'm using my my computer in class and not working on classwork, I kind of feel guilty about it. So I don't know why I exactly report all of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So there is studies that uh, compare self-report versus um, actual usage. Mm-hmm. And it's true that students, well, probably everyone, tends to under-report. So Right. We probably have a conservative estimate here of how much internet use affects or is related to classroom performance. Got it.
2: And um, you said you did it in a psychology class, freshman level psychology class. Do Do you think the negative impact of the internet use would vary across majors or grades or would it be pretty consistent across
0: the board? Right. So I would think it would be pretty consistent across all disciplines. I think that it's affecting basic cognitive processes. If you're um, paying attention to your cell phone or laptop use, you're not then attending to what's going on in the classroom. And across disciplines, important things happen in the classroom.
2: Mm-hmm. Got it. And in, in recent years, you know i've I've at least heard a lot about how mul- multitasking is kind of a myth. People can't really concentrate on separate tasks. They're more switching, they're focused mm-hmm. between separate things. Um, kind of limiting the focus of each task if they were be do, if they were to do them individually. So, does your research support that case, or is it um, kind of, or is the internet in 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 the class kind of its un, own unique beast?
0: Yeah, um, I think it's unclear at this point. Um, there and and certainly the research that looks at multitasking is also mixed. So, mm. a lot find that. Um, Your working memory, for example, is worse if you use a lot of, um, if you do a lot of media multitasking. But then another study done here by Mark Becker and Reem al-Zahabi show that your ability to switch between tasks is faster the more you use Hmm. uh, multimedia. So it's going to be a very complex kind of relationship.
2: Mm -hmm. And so is there ways for a person to increase their ability to multitask or is it really a worthless effort?
0: Right, so that's a a good question. I think in the classroom, um that it's probably best to just limit your use of the internet um, because I think if it is a unique beast um, using the internet or laptop or cell phone usage, um I think it might be that it's especially engaging. So you know, in typical multitasking, one of the tasks isn't, like, way more fun than the other task, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're in the classroom, um, you know, there's a lot of redundancy in the classroom, for example, and you might get bored, and then you're like, I'll just check, I'll just text, do one little text, and then I'll pay attention again. But then it's like, you get a response, and you keep going, so.
2: Yeah, I've I've definitely been guilty of that, of like, oh, I've learned this before, and then I'd go to, like, check my Facebook, and then 20 minutes later, I've missed half the class. Right. (laughs) And
0: before you know it, they've moved on to another topic, right? (laughs) Um,
2: So do you believe that there's anything that educators and professors can do to alleviate this kind of problem, or does it fall on the students to self-police themselves?
0: Right. Um, So, you know, banning laptops or cell phone is probably impractical at this point. Um, Someone has suggested that maybe giving people breaks during class to text or use email might work. Um, but, you know, it, it would still count on students to police themselves um, during times when there's not like an Internet break. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just having students know that their um, laptop and cell phone usage is related to their exam scores is helpful to them. Certainly when we, we ask students, how do you think your laptop use is uh, affecting your learning in class? And they tended to report that it wasn't really having an effect. So the students really kind of underestimate the uh, the effect of their cell phone usage in class on their <laughs> on their exam scores.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, that, for me, that really makes sense. You know, I think like, oh, just one little text isn't going to hurt. But like mm-hmm. I said, you know, 20 minutes go by and <laughs> you missed half the class. Right. <laughs> um, and with classes, uh, with a lot of my classes now, um, computers are, are required depending on, you know, if we're working with a program or something like that. So would it be harder for, for those classes to, to um, you know, alleviate this problem?
0: Right. So, yeah, I think it would be. Um, but I don't think that we should then just ban laptops because mm-hmm. I think those um, computer oriented exercises in class can be very helpful. So it would be a shame to miss out on those kinds of things just because students might be tempted to use it for non-classroom purposes.
2: Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, if you're just joining us, this is Exposure on Impact 89FM, and we've been talking with Dr. Susan Reviza of the Department of Psychology about non-academic Internet use in the classroom. So before we go, is there anything else about the study that you found interesting that you'd like to add?
0: Hmm. Well, I think just uh, in general, what we'd like to do in the future is to look at actual usage in the class. As you uh, suggested, we mm-hmm. might not be getting the full impact of um, internet and cell phone usage so we would like to do that in the future
2: awesome well thank you very much for being with us thanks Grand Adventure is a group of paddle sport advocates that works to provide awareness and support for the sport, as well as encouraging those with physical disabilities to embrace the sport. Each year, the group paddles from Tompkins Center all the way to Lake Michigan. Unfortunately, founder Scott Fraser has been afflicted with the degenerative spinal disease, which has made this year's event hard on him. But rather than sit on the sidelines, he is back in the water to show his support for his fellow paddlers. We got the chance to talk with Scott about this year's event. Well,
1: a Grand Adventure is a water event based on bringing awareness to accessibility and education on the riverways of Michigan. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And what are you guys raising awareness for?
1: Well, there are a lot of people out there with disabilities, physical and cognitive disabilities, that don't think they can do things like kayaking. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to get out and make awareness that you can do these things.
2: Gotcha. And are you guys raising money for any organizations?
1: Uh, What we're doing is we're raising money to try and give grants out to organizations that couldn't normally afford to do these programs,
3: mm-hmm.
1: we want to get them on the water.
2: Gotcha. Very cool. And I understand that this year you faced faced some unexpected illness and the original plan for the Grand Adventure was to end in um, Saranac, but your team decided to take it further, correct? Correct. Very cool. So um, can you just talk a little bit about that? What made them decide that they wanted to go all the way to Lake Michigan?
1: Well, originally... The goal was to go all the way to Lake Michigan, and then I became ill over the winter with a pulmonary embolism, Mm -hmm. and we didn't think we were going to make it. So we shortened the trip up, Mm -hmm. and then I decided that, well, we're going to go all the way to the lake anyways, and I have a spinal injury that has caused me problems, and I've had to pull out. So the the team decided they were going to finish the trip for me since I couldn't do it.
2: Gotcha. That's really cool to hear. And so how, how has that um, impacted the, the Grand Adventure team? Has there been a new uh, drive for them to, to do even more?
1: I, I think the fact that they understand my passion and my desire to want to be able to prove accessibility and the fact that I wasn't able to do it because of a disability drive, drove them to go all the way to the lake for me mm-hmm. and for the people with disabilities to raise that awareness.
2: Gotcha. And for someone who's um, looking to find out more information about the uh, the Grand Adventure, where, where can they find that?
1: They can go to the website at agrandadventure2014.com.
2: All right. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much for being with us today, and we do wish you the, the very best of luck, Scott.
1: Great. Thank you very much. Have a thank wonderful
2: you. day. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. Now, back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned into Exposure on Impact 89FM, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Finally tonight, we got the chance to sit down with a new startup in Michigan. Turtle Cell tackles a problem that has been facing smartphone users since the dawn of the iPhone. Jeremy Lindelbauer tells us about his product.
6: Um, We've designed the first protective phone case with retractable headphones built inside the case. Mm. So, you know, you can actually pull the headphones out to any length where they'll lock. They have a microphone so you can take your phone calls. Uh, And then when you're done listening, you just press a button on the side of the case and they retract back in neatly to the top of your case where they sit. Um, And so as students, you know, or prior students, recent grads, they really, you know, solved the problem that we identified, which was, you know, you'd be walking between classes and you might have a five-minute walk between classes and when you're spending you know, half of that battling tangled headphones, Or, you know, if you even remembered your headphones at all, um, you know, this way you save all that time. It's a lot more convenient and it's uh, just kind of a new solution to the problem.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've always been amazed how much my headphones can tangle from a two-minute walk. So it's definitely appreciated. But um, so you've been involved um, since the beginning of this project?
6: Right. Um, Actually, pretty early on. So I actually went to grade school with one of the other co-founders and I saw what, Kim and Paul Trem, so the other two co-founders are Nick and Paul, Mm -hmm. Uh, they are U of M alums. And actually, I saw what they were doing uh, pretty early on when they were in the design stages because they're really on the engineering side and myself, I'm more on the sales and marketing side. Uh, And so as soon as I saw what they were doing, um, I said, I got to be a part of this. I'd love to kind of be involved in bringing that MSU aspect into the company because, I think that one of our strong suits as a university is kind of that marketing aspect and that uh, you know sociability. And my two co-founders are brilliant guys, awesome engineers, uh, and it really just was a good pair for, for the three of us.
2: Yeah, that's really, that's really cool to hear. And so uh, do you know how they came up with the ideas? W- what was it just that they've always had the Tangle headphones and they thought, why not just put it in the phone? I mean, it makes total sense. As soon as I saw it, I was like, yes, that makes perfect sense. But do you, do you know how they originally decided to start bringing this product together?
6: Yeah, uh, so Paul Shrems is the inventor, and it really was just that. He was walking back from class. It was a short walk. He spent almost all of it untangling his headphones. And was so fed up by the time he got back, he said, you know, I'm going to try to do something about it. And really, the first thing is he sincerely went to the Internet to find a solution. And really, probably the most evident solution was uh, Bluetooth. Mm -hmm. But with Bluetooth, it's actually still really expensive, which is out of a lot of college kids' price ranges. um, And then you have to charge it at night, and it's easy to lose.
1: Mm -hmm.
6: Um, So he was really like, you know, I'm going to try to create my own solution uh, and since then, it was really kind of you know finding Nick and myself and then uh, you know building the team. And at this point, uh, we have a team of nine um, that are working on the, the, the company here, and um, things have gone really well.
2: Yeah. And I imagine uh, to get a product like this made, it takes a lot of collaboration. Like you said, you're marketing and they're the, the engineers, but actually getting it manufacturing, I, I imagine, is its own um, you know interesting problem. So have you guys worked with any other companies or are there any other people to actually get the product built?
6: Yeah, great segue question, actually. So, we <laughs> licensed the product to a manufacturing and distribution expert, actually, out of Auburn Hills, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, what they do is they already sell products in the huge retailers, and they're experts on the manufacturing side. So, um, we basically, you know, partnered with them, who are helping us to ensure a very timely uh, and effective launch. So, we're actually, we have 130,000 cases ordered. Um, And we're expecting to be selling all of those international retailers by the holidays. Mm. So that'll really kick us off, you know, extremely quickly, which without that partnership would be really tough to to do.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
6: So that'll leave us to basically be here in Ann Arbor focusing on our our strengths, which are designing new products um, and doing the e-commerce sales and marketing and kind of building a brand that people can relate to that's fun and and kind of more... Towards college students.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of um, being aimed towards college students, like you said, you guys are in Ann Arbor and you've you've talked a lot in some of your other interviews about how much you value the Michigan economy and want to make sure you, you you're staying here. So can you just expand on this a little bit more? What what attracted or what makes you want to stay in Michigan?
6: Well, I think it's actually really cool to hear for, you know, as, as other for other, I guess, interested entrepreneurs in Michigan. The state gives you so many resources, both at the university level, so for us at MSU and U of M, but also just at the state level, um, the Michigan Economic Development Corporation and other uh, programs around the state. We've received about almost $100,000 in basically free money, equity-free money from the state um, just by doing business pitch competitions, um, utilizing resources. We've gotten business accelerator grants. Uh, the University of Michigan State uh, funded a trip out to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Uh, mm-hmm. The University of Michigan has helped in multiple ways. And all these resources are really what makes it so great to work here in Michigan. You mm-hmm. can't get that in other places. You know, California, of course, is a hot spot for startups, but it's so much more expensive.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, and, and like, for instance, our uh, our office, we're in a beautiful office here in Ann Arbor, with nine guys in it, and it's so Uh cost-effective on top of all the resources we've got, you know, received through the state. So it's just a great place to start a company because you have access to so much. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I think the biggest thing is we're in Ann Arbor, um, you know, obviously really close to both East Lansing and Ann Arbor. We're just always, uh, I guess, dealing with good resources as far as the students that come out of the universities. And that's how we've basically gotten all of our interns who are now, um, transitioning into full-time employees.
2: Yeah, that's really that's really great. You know, I'm I really am very happy to hear you guys are sticking around. And so, when can we expect to see the Turtle Cell? You said by the holidays. That's the plan, right now.
6: Yeah. So actually, we just launched a pre-order campaign through our our, our website. Um, so for more information, you can go to turtlesell.com to see what we're doing, um, and there um, is where we basically launched this pre-order campaign, um, and you can kind of have this affordable solution to this problem. Um, and we are offering a discount uh, for the pre-orders, but as, that's as we're tooling up for mass production. Mm-hmm. And we are, uh, again, we ordered, I have 130,000 cases ordered, which we're going to be delivering here in the fall. Wow. And that's when we're kind of launching the full retail um, sales cycles. And um, that's when you can expect to see us in stores.
2: Awesome. And do you have any uh, events planned in East Lansing or anywhere around Michigan that we can find you guys?
6: Yeah, um, it's what we were always recruiting. We've been at the Michigan State and U of M career fairs. Um, and as far as other events, um, we are kind of lay low as we're kind of in execution mode right now, making sure the manufacturing happens properly, you know, make sure everything's on, uh, on time. Um, but I, I guess one of the other events that we're doing is we're flying back out to Las Vegas for another trade show here soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we will have a presence around both universities, and that's something that's kind of in the works right now. Um so trying to kind of, you know, stay in touch with really our friends. I mean, we're recent college grads and friends and students. So
1: mm-hmm. um,
6: you can expect to see us.
2: Mm-hmm. Andy, uh, one thing you said that I'd, I'd like to go back to a little bit. You, you mentioned you guys are building a brand. So does this mean we'll, we should expect to see other products from you guys as well? I'm, I'm sure you're focusing a lot on just getting this out right now. But do you guys have any plans for anything mm-hmm. else in the future?
6: Yeah. So the other big thing in the industry that you see uh, that's pretty popular is battery cases. People love the extra charge and what's really cool is we we have this space in our case currently where we can add a battery. So we're going to actually have our next product and all future turtle cells will have both the retractable headphones and battery. So you can get uh, extra charge on your phone, plus have the, head, the convenience of your headphones in, inside the case.
2: Mm-hmm. You guys are definitely thinking of college students because I can't name how many times my phone has died in the last week alone. <laughs>
0: right. So, right. Yeah.
6: Exactly.
2: <laughs> well, I just want to thank you again for um, talking with us. We've been talking with Jeremy Lindenbauer, who is a co founder of Turtle Cell. So thanks again, Jeremy.
6: I really appreciate it. Here we go. going.
3: Stay.
2: Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to Station Manager Gabriela Saldivia, General Manager Ed Glazer, and all our staff here at Impact 89FM. Tonight's show and all their exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Stephen Rich, and you've been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM.
1: Broadcasting from the
2: campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to
0: Impact Exposure